Jodcast, Consuming an Earth-like Planet, with Melanie Jandra, Stuart Harper, Melis Irfan, Tim O'Brien, Kat McGuire and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, May 2012, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. Joining me in the studio today is Melis Irfan and Christina Smith. Hi guys. Hi. In the show this time we talk to Nick Germanic about astrophotography, Professor Alan Fitzsimmons about the Near Earth Object Shield Project, Dr Thomas Target about massive black holes and your astronomical questions are answered in Ask an Astronomer. But first, before all of that, Stuart talks to Fotini Laiku about evolved stars in this month's Jodbite. In this Jodbite, I have been joined by Fotini Liku, who has recently been a co-author in a paper released in the 12th of April edition of Nature. The paper is about the measurements of dust grains around AGB stars and their effects on stellar winds. So, to begin with, what is an AGB star? Um, well, an AGB star is a star much older than our sun. Um, usually, um, a sun-type star of one to eight solar masses, let's say, and it's currently dying. So, which is why we say we have mass loss, basically. So, it loses up to eight percent of its original mass. And so, what does dust grains have to do with the mass loss, the ejection from these AGB stars? Well, yes, but the general idea so far is that the um, the mass loss is um, initiated by radiative pre- pressure. So you have light transferring momentum, pushing uh, the dust out either by absorption or by scattering. And as a consequence, the dust will later on um, push the gas out, uh, the gas, the molecular and atomic, the molecular layers of the star out by collisions. So basically it helps to drive a wind um, that guides all the material out. So is this um, a sort of a a much larger version of the stellar wind we'd get from the sun, for example? Yes, well, I'm not sure what is the exactly amount from from the sun, but for the AGP stars it can be 10 to the minus 6 up to 10 to the minus 4 solar masses per year, which is Pretty huge, basically. That's, that's quite a lot of material, yeah. yeah, definitely. So the paper in Nature is actually about the detection of these dust grains around the stars. So how exactly did you do that? What did you do to detect the dust grains? Well, what we wanted to do, and this is a project led by Barnaby Norris in the University of Sydney, was to look at the dust near the surface of the star. So we had to employ a technique called interferometry, where basically you're allowed to look at very um, small stars. Well, it gives you a better resolution, and you're allowed to look at the near the surface of the stars. And to look at the dust uh, as well, the dust shells around the stars, we have to use polarimetry. Um, because, you know, um, light, which is scattered, it's polarized, so you need this, this technique. And... Um, and this has been done in the near infrared because these these cool giants, um, the three giants we looked at were um, W. Haya, R. Doradus, and R. Leo, are uh, large oxygen-rich AGP stars. Um, oxygen-rich meaning that they have a, a larger abundance of oxygen compared to carbon, which is the other um, most abundant molecule um, in those stars. And um, we'll try to figure out the the size and the composition of the dust grains in those shells. And how large exactly are the dust particles that or dust grains that are uh, driving the the gas out in the stellar winds? Well, in in this particular case from the modeling that we have done, we found that the dust grains, which are in this case mainly um, composed of silicates are uh, about 600 nanometers in, in diameter, which are larger than the, the light that basically pushes them um, forward. And we also see that th- those silicate grains are iron-free. So a silicate grain will basically have magnesium, iron, 
silicon and oxygen. Now, the grains that we used in the modeling do not have any iron at all. Um, and that is because um, if you have iron in a grain um, near the stellar surface, the grain will melt as it absorbs light. Uh, whereas if you, ha if you don't have any iron, so iron-free silicates, um, the grain will mostly scatter the light. So in, in all cases for the three stars that we have, basically, we've found that um, the grains are about two stellar radii um, away from the surface, which is pretty, pretty close, where um, if it was an iron-rich uh, grain, it will be further out, so five to perhaps ten stellar radii away. It wouldn't be able to survive near the stellar surface. Yeah, so these, these dust grains technically are quite far out, though, in a way. Yes, they are they're, far out. Yeah, they're nowhere near. They're sort of in the very external atmospheres of the of the stars in general. Yes, there are, and they, you know, they extend further out, of course, the atmosphere as it's... The, the, the layer extends further out from the actual surface of the star. Okay, well, as a... Um... Final question: so, How much of the material in the interstellar medium is generated by the stellar winds, as opposed to, say, supernovas? Well, there is there is an argument in, in general scientific community about that whether supernovae um, are the main contributors to um, the mass in the interstellar medium, or is it the AGB stars? But um, I would say that AGB stars are the main contributors um, and reach the ISM with heavier material, and by heavier I mean dust mainly, which can then you know be recycled to by younger stars and lead up to what we have now as a solar system. So thank you very much. Thank you. And goodbye. Thanks for that, Stuart. Next up, Stuart talks to Nick Germanic about astrophotography. Hello, this is uh, Stuart Harper and I'm here at the National Astronomy Meeting and I've been joined with Nick Shimonic. So uh, do you want to tell me about what you do? Um, well, I lead a double life actually. Mm -hmm. I have a full-time day job as a train driver on the London Underground mm -hmm. and I have a very interesting hobby which is amateur astronomy which is combined with photography. So I'm an astrophotographer. Um, that's been something that's um, I've been interested in for over 20 years now and I've been very lucky enough to have been involved with the new technology involved with astrophotography right from the very early days and we've also been very lucky in the fact that we've been able to travel to some very nice locations abroad uh, Hawaii for example, Mauna Kea Observatory and La Palma in the Canary Islands to do astrophotography out there as, as an amateur astronomer so I've been invited to go out there to, to use the, the dark sky facilities not the actual telescopes themselves mm -hmm. so we've been out there 15, 15 or 16 times now to very dark sky sites but these days the majority of work that I actually do is from a light polluted location in, in Essex um, but with the quality of instrumentation that's now available to amateurs, it's possible to get really good results. And you know, hopefully that will come across in the talk that I'm about to give this afternoon. Mm -hmm. so we'll be comparing modern amateur images with professional images of a couple of decades ago. What sort of what do you use at home then? What is it you've got down in Essex? Well, it's, a, it's a, as I say, it's a very well-equipped observatory because it's something I've been building towards for the last 20 years. I mean, we've seen this incredible rise in the quality of the instrumentation, not only in terms of cameras, but in terms of telescopes and mounts. These are the three three things you need to do astronomy or astrophotography successfully. A camera, and it can be either a CCD camera, which is my camera of choice, yeah. a DSLR camera, it's a cheap entry-level system for people starting out and will deliver good results, a telescope of some description, um, modern apochromatic refractors are very, very well-priced now mm -hmm. and um, of exceedingly good quality compared to 10 years ago. And then, of course, there's the mounting system itself, the equatorial mount, which tracks these things in the sky. The sky's moving the whole time. We need to have equipment that will track that. And I've gone for the very best I can afford in that sense, which is a Paramount ME. This is one of the sort of top-level amateur level mounts and this is great because it's been completely and utterly reliable from day one it'll point the telescope to where i want it to go it'll track the telescope with incredible precision mm -hmm. it'll track the, the the telescope across the sky with incredible precision so the the, the heart of my system is a paramount me equatorial head mm -hmm. i'm using a, a 10 inch richie crescian to, um, telescope for okay. the majority of images i've also got a, a small refractor um, for wide field work and I use QSI CCD cameras I've got two of those 
One um, is an average-sized chip, medium-sized chip, but with very high efficiency, and the other is a, a larger chip but with lower efficiency. So it's a case of mixing and uh, you know, choosing the camera to, to, to suit the target. Um, so what's, what makes the difference between these CCD cameras and a normal camera, like the SLR camera? Well, there are significant differences. I mean, if you compare the detector technology, they, are, they have a, sh- a common heritage. They share a com- common heritage. But where they divide, um, a DSLR is a mass-produced sensor mm-hmm. which has a matrix of colour filters that takes colour pictures because that's what people want to do, quite rightly. Mm-hmm. And um, with, if you go into the other branch, the, the CCD camera, um, they're generally monochrome cameras, so they only take images of shades of grey, black, black and white, um, and to produce colour pictures we need to use colour filters, and that can either be red, green and blue filters, or narrow band filters such as hydrogen alpha, oxygen 3 and sulphur 2 for example. Um, but a significant difference is that not only do we have the flexibility by using coloured filters with monochrome cameras, but we also have the cameras called. So what happens is electronic detectors in DSLRs and CCDs generate a certain amount of noise, for example, unwanted signal during the course of a five or ten minute exposure. So what we have to do, we call the CCD camera because for every eight degrees reduction in operating temperature of the the sensor in the camera, Mm -hmm. that halves the electronic noise. So when I'm working from home... Um, in the winter time, I can run my CCD camera at a temperature of you know my, below minus thirty, and that really does withhold this electronic noise from building up. Yeah. Now DSLR doesn't have that luxury, so what it means is that you're limited, particularly working in a, a warm location like the UK in the summer. Yeah. You'll find that the electronic noise will become quite apparent within two or three minutes of exposures, whereas with my own cameras, I can go on for you know forty minute exposures or something like that without too much problem from the. This this dark current that, that afflicts the exposures. But don't forget, DSLRs, you can buy them for incredibly good prices now. The, the sensors are large. Um, they're, they're very high-quality sensors. And, you know, the cameras are really well-priced, and they're, they're very suitable for astronomy. But you're limited by the, the kind of targets you can go for. They're very susceptible to light pollution. They're not so user-friendly, for example, with narrowband filters whereas with a dedicated monochrome camera, they're perfect recording instruments. They're really sort of great. You've talked a little bit about how you could do the uh, dark frames to remove mm-hmm. noise, but I mean, what other sort of software processes can you do? I mean, what, what do you do when you process your uh, images? Well, I mean, the, the, the start of any good image is the calibration frames that I've talked about, the dark frames, the flat frames, mm-hmm. and the bias. I mean, that's, that is CCD nuts and bolts that has to be done, and then you just move on from that point once you've got that data. But then you can use um, software to open the, 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 your, your, your black and white image, for example, that's been taken through colour filters. The first thing you would do would be to combine those into a colour image. And there's all sorts of software that can do that, but my favourite of all of that is Adobe Photoshop, which is a desktop yeah. um, editing package for everyday photography and design and graphics, this kind of stuff. But it's tailor-made for astronomy as well. Hmm. So you can combine your colour images using you know, one of several techniques in Photoshop. But what's even better than that is that you can use Photoshop's advanced filters, its filtering out algorithms, to start to extract the detail that is contained within your I- images but may be hidden by, for example, the poor seeing, the poor quality of the atmosphere. And uh, it's great fun to do. It allows you to put a personal stamp on an image. And one thing I always say at the talks that I do is that if... If, if, if there was 50 people in the audience and they were all CCD images, I could say to them, give them all a copy of the same image, like a galaxy or something like that, tell them to go away and then come back a week later and show me how they processed it. And you could almost guarantee that every one of those would be slightly different in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, make, I, I like to keep the sky background a little bit brighter than jet black because it shows you all the, the edge contours of galaxies. and nebula. Some people like the sky to be absolutely jet black. The colour combination is a very subjective thing. If we're imaging galaxies, we try to keep it objective rather than subjective. But once we once we go into narrowband imaging with hydrogen alpha filters and others, you're creating what's to all intents and purposes a, a, a false colour image. So you, you can stamp your own personality on the images in that sense. You can use colour palettes that, that you like and you know other people haven't used and this kind of stuff. So it's quite a personal thing. But um, the, the software's out there. There's there's free software. Um, there's a, a free equivalent of Photoshop called GIMP, 
mm-hmm. um, which is, I think it was originally written for Linux, um, but you know, it's filtered into the sort of Windows operating system. You can download that. It's very, very heavily featured. And there's all sorts of intermediate programs that you can use for different, um, you know, generally plugins, for example, for Photoshop that can deal with light pollution in your images and you know, color registration. There's some, you know, people are writing this software all day long, and um, there's a good choice of that sort of stuff. So how much are these sort of, as an entry-level sort of CCD, if someone did want to sort of move from the SLR to that level? They they vary in cost. I mean, there's a couple of companies in the UK that produce high-quality cameras Mm -hmm. for very reasonable prices. So whenever I get asked that question, which I do get asked a lot after the talks that I do, people are quite keen to start out. One thing I'd normally say to people is you're better off perhaps starting with a DSLR. Yeah. Put that on your telescope and your mounting system and get used to things like auto-guiding and focusing and stuff like that. Because a lot of people have already got a DSLR camera for their day-to-day sort of family use, this kind of stuff. So we'd always recommend starting with that. And if, if you're happy with the results and you want to go a step further, you can buy what we can call entry-level cameras for probably um, about £500, I think, uh, at the first entry-level camera. Okay. And then... Um, you know, the, they're, they're good quality cameras. Um, you, know, you can do very good work with these. They do colour cameras as well as monochrome, but as I said earlier, I would recommend monochrome cameras, although that, of course, means investing in a filter mm-hmm. set and a, a filter wheel of some sort, preferably motorised, just to streamline the whole process. So then, um, once you've done that, if you're happy with the results and you then wish to improve, then you can start basically with with CCD cameras the more you pay the better you tend to get so you'll find you're going up towards larger chips larger sensors within the cameras higher efficiency sensors there may be better cooling for example and all this kind of stuff but there's definitely a learning curve there and you you, you may be limited by budgetary constraints I mean you can really get a full astrophotography rig for probably about um, altogether for about £1400 so that's a mounting system, a okay. telescope, a camera, and an auto-guiding camera, which takes care of all of the, the fine tracking. Okay, so it's, it's quite an investment, but it is. Yeah. yeah, it's doable. What we find is that very few people actually go in at that level. They start simple and then just work upwards, and if they, they like the hobby, because some people get into the hobby and don't enjoy it. You know, with the endless cloudy nights, the moonlight, all this kind of stuff, yeah. it does stop you from flowing along in the hobby, certainly. But what you find is that people who enjoy the hobby will then look to upgrade and that'll be the up the telescope mount even the telescope itself and certainly the camera and then you can pay anything up to the mid-range cameras like i use are typically three to four thousand pounds each something like that so expensive a serious yeah, outlay but you you get what you pay for in that in that field certainly so the results do show you, you you do see a big improvement in performance once you start going up to the high-end cameras okay uh well moving on to sort of a bit more about the sort of the history of what you've done because uh, you said you worked out in La Palma and I uh, heard that you started helping out with things like the William Herschel telescope so yeah. how, how did that, that come that, about? That was really exciting it, what, what happened was we, we went out to La Palma initially to find a place to observe without light pollution so I went out there as an amateur astronomer and was very lucky to meet um, a person who's become a very good friend who was actually an instrumentation engineer on the three UK scopes and he opened a huge amount of doors for us. Um, he got us permission to work at the observatory. And because we've been doing it every year, um, they know that we're fairly serious about what we do. We, we understand the, the sort of protocols involved with working from these locations. You know, you can't go around with car lights on or you know, torches or anything. You have to adhere very carefully to the professional standards. Mm-hmm. But we do that because we're serious about what we do. And we've built up a very good working reputation with a lot of the regular staff there. And I'd do a lot of public relations work for them. I shoot the, the telescopes in the daytime, shoot the telescopes at night, come back and give talks in the UK and spread the word really about the great work that's being done by UK and um, other, it's a multinational site on La Palma, other mm-hmm. astronomers that are there. So then um, they understood that I was very keen on the image processing side of CCD imaging. So it's, it, it's, it's a 50-50 thing. The first 50% is actually acquiring the data. Mm-hmm. And then the second 50% is going into your bedroom or something with a computer and then just actually you know, um, working with image processing techniques to actually extract the very maximum detail from your images. Yeah. 
And then after that, um, they, 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 they understood that I was very keen on image processing. I've worked with other projects in the UK, and they said, we've got these what we call public relations images. They were shot with cameras for trial purposes to see how the cameras are performing. They had a large archive of images that people had taken in the past and never bothered going back to. So they said, would you be interested in applying sort of the image processing to our images? So I said, well, yes. And um, without a shadow of a doubt, the quality of the images they're getting out there were absolutely first rate. You know, mm. The sky conditions are fantastic, the instrumentation's great, it's a world class site. So it was easy. You know, to process their images was simple because you're not dealing with light pollution and other problems, mm. you're just dealing with very high quality um, data. So that, that took up a couple of years um, working with different data from different telescopes of the three use case scopes out there. And it's actually gone into other departments as well. Astronomers have come into La Palma, mm-hmm. you know, done, done an imaging run and then disappeared and then got back to me and said, well, I've got my data. Would you have a look at that for me? And then, yeah, well, of course I will. And it's got a bit quiet at the moment, but it sort of tends to go in fits and, and bursts. So it's, it's just, the, you know, the point I'm trying to put across here is it's easier to process their data than it is to process my own because I'm dealing with the problems with light pollution and poor seeing and all this kind of stuff. So it's a pleasure to do that for them. And um, they, they've, they've reciprocated by allowing us to go out there. They give us facilities to work in with their own equipment every year, you know, you know in a really fantastic site. So it's a great working relationship, I think. Yeah, it's pretty lucky to get involved with that. Sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, so um, thank you very much for oh, talking to welcome. me. And I uh, hope your talk goes really well. Thanks. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. So hopefully, show you what we've been talking about. Yeah, here. I'll actually so, get to see uh, the images. Yeah, yeah so yeah, that'd be exciting to get through. So, yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for that, Stuart. And as we strive to be the BBC, there are, of course, other products available other than those mentioned by Nick. Now we have Christina talking to Professor Alan Fitzsimmons about the NeoShield project. Joining me today is Professor Alan Fitzsimmons of Queen University Belfast. Um, hello, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and you are, you've just given a talk on the NeoShield, um, a global approach to new impact threat mitigation. Can you sort of explain what NeoShield is? Okay, well, let's, let's break it down into uh, sections there. NEO stands for N-E-O, or Near Earth Object. Now, we've known for decades that the Earth is like any other body in a solar system. It's still accreting uh, bits of stuff left over from its formation four and a half billion years ago. Uh, Small bits of rock that we would call asteroids, much smaller than a planet, and also small bits of ice that we call comets. And when I say small, we're actually looking at anything up to maybe 10 kilometres across, but it's (laughs) much smaller than a planet. Now, um... Uh, we observe these and they're very interesting from a scientific point of view because as they're in the same region of the solar system as our planet it gives us a close-up view of some of these things left over from the birth of our solar system but of course occasionally if they do hit us then they can have quite dramatic effects and in the past, when they've hit us, we haven't really worried about it. In fact, uh, we now, we're now pretty certain that 65 million years ago, a very large asteroid or comet hit the Earth and that precipitated the extinction of the dinosaurs, giving rise to the age of mammals and eventually us. But saying that, we don't want that to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> so the NeoShield project is to assist us in figuring out what to do if we ever find an asteroid or a comet that is likely to hit us in the next century. Okay, so it's ways of stopping stopping any potential threat against against the Earth, like from from asteroids. That that's right. I mean, actually, although to be honest, we always have to be clear about this. <laughs> the Earth won't notice. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. As a planet, it's a big. We, we we've identified over two hundred craters left from the impacts of asteroids and comets on the surface of the Earth so far. And in fact, we'd have a lot more if it wasn't for the erosion caused by the Earth's weather and atmosphere and plate tectonics. Um, now, the thing is, is that uh, uh, these things don't happen that often. Let's be honest about it. We don't uh, continuously walk around and, and worry about what's going to fall on us from above. Uh, but we know it's happened in the past, and we know it's going to happen again in the future. It's a natural process. Uh, from surveys of the solar system, and looking particularly for uh, near-Earth asteroids and comets, we know that something about the size of a kilometre across 
hits us perhaps once every 800,000 years to once every million years. As you go down to smaller sizes, there's more of them, and so they hit us more frequently. Something perhaps 100 metres across hits us once every few 10,000 years, and something uh, perhaps 30 metres across or 40 metres across may hit us once every few hundred years. Now, things that small will not really even affect our civilization, but their energy that they release when they hit us would be enough to wipe out, say, a city or certainly a small region of land. And so we'd like to avoid that happening, yes, if definitely. at all possible. <laughs> so have you got are there ideas as to how you could possibly stop them from happening? Absolutely. Now, one thing is it's not going to be like uh, Hollywood and Bruce Willis with all, all the TV or, or movies that you can see uh, in that waiting for the last moment to, to do anything. We've actually got on paper a number of technologies that we could use, all of which involve generally nudging the asteroid so that it follows a slightly different orbit and it, uh, by doing so, it instead of hitting the Earth, flies safely past. Uh, now, those three mechanisms are, in turn, what we call a kinetic impactor, where we have a very fast-moving spacecraft that literally just runs into the so near-Earth object. pushing it away. Absolutely. It hits it, it gets vaporised, and the conservation of momentum means that the much larger asteroid moves it slightly itself, and that puts it onto a different orbit and misses us. Another idea is the gravity tractor, where again we take a large spacecraft, but here we rendezvous with okay. the object, and we just hover above it. And we know that the laws of gravity state that even though the asteroid is pulling on the spacecraft, the spacecraft pulls on the asteroid. And by maintaining its position over perhaps a decade or so, we'd slowly, gently move that asteroid into a, a slightly different orbit. Once again, it would miss us. How, how far away would you have to be? from the asteroid how far away would the, the spacecraft have to hover well that that's a problem it would have to probably hover only two or three radii from the object and these asteroids even the smallest ones uh, are quite irregular mm -hmm. and they're also spinning and so one thing that we'll be investigating in this project is that if we went for this gravity tractor how well could we maintain station uh, to make sure we kept pulling the asteroid in the same direction and could we in fact do it for 10 years or yeah. more Is that the length of time it would, it would in reality take? Probably so even with a kinetic impactor we would have to hit it uh, many years, several years before its project, projected uh, impact with the Earth to make sure that by the time we got to the Earth's vicinity the nudge we gave it at that point would, had been enough to move it slightly and make sure that it missed the Earth Okay. Um, are there any other possible mechanisms that Well, the, the technique that nobody's really wanted to discuss in the past has been the nuclear option. Now, that's not vaporising the object, but what you do is you take a high-yield nuclear weapon and you explode it above the surface of the asteroid. Okay. And what that does, that it vaporises the surface of the asteroid facing... Uh, the nuclear explosion and again that material blasts off in one direction so the asteroid moves slowly in the other direction again we're using the conservation of momentum to move that object just like the kinetic impactor now this is a very efficient way to do this because of course uh, e even a small nuclear weapon has a huge releases a huge amount of energy of course however uh, we have incredible political and security yes, implications yes. <laughs> and ethical implications as well that we need to address and so although we will be looking at this option uh, for deflecting an asteroid we'll be involving of course the United Nations and, and uh, various other space agencies and government level agencies just to make sure that we, we play on an even keel with everyone we are not suggesting that this is something we should do but it would be silly not to investigate yeah. that possibility of, of using that technique so are there different time frames that are available? Because obviously you said the gravity tractor had to be used for, say, 10 years. Sort of, do we, Does each different method have its own merits to time frame? Or? De definitely. If we've got a few years warning uh, or more and the object is relatively small, certainly less than a kilometre across, then a kinetic impactor can work. 
If we've got more than a decade, we could also think of a gravity tractor. But if we've only got a few years warning, so say less than five, or the object is fairly large, a kilometre or larger, then the only option we have at the moment is a nuclear uh, device. Now, saying that, those objects do hit very rarely, and it's likely that over the next 20 years we won't find an object uh, like that. But we can never be sure. The only asteroid we've ever detected that was definitely on an impact trajectory was a small asteroid. It was only four metres across, and so we were new. We knew that it would burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. But that was only detected 19 hours before impact. So uh, with a larger object, we would see it much further out and a longer time before impact. But we have to be aware of all the implications and all possible possibilities. So how do you... Are there projects in place to detect um, these near-Earth objects that could potentially be a hazard? Um, are, there, are there different telescopes there? Absolutely, there are several surveys that have been ongoing for the past decade or more to detect near-Earth objects and and catalogue them and just check that they're not coming anywhere near us. And uh, now we've almost got 9,000 near-Earth asteroids that we've detected. And in fact, the the discovery rate has accelerated as we've brought online larger telescopes and more sensitive uh, cameras. And so now we detect about 900 new objects every year. Wow. Uh, And so we really are accelerating. And that's because uh, simply there's, there's a lot more out there. And even with 900 new objects being found every year, we've probably still only found 10% of the objects that if they hit us mm-hmm. would make it through the Earth's atmosphere and, and cause some destruction at the Earth's surface. So most of the ones that are discovered are, are very small and would just be vaporised in the atmosphere as, it, as they came in? Well, there, there's a whole range. In fact, what we've done so far up to now is concentrate on the large ones because mm-hmm. anything a, a kilometre across or larger... The model suggests that that would cause global climate change in a matter of days. And in fact, it's the opposite of the, what we're worried about at the moment, global warming. It would cause global cooling because of all the debris uh, put up into the stratosphere. And predictions state that a large f- proportion of humanity would actually perish due to the ensuing food shortages. Now, the good news there is that we've found... Uh, most of those objects already there's okay. just a few left to sweep up but, but we've found most of those objects and none of them are coming anywhere near us in the next hundred years but it's the small objects that we're now worrying about the small okay. objects are fainter and so they're more difficult to see they're more difficult to spot and so you do need the largest uh, or larger astro- uh, telescopes and you need wide field cameras to s- survey as much of the sky as possible at the same time so the largest uh, facility we've got working at the moment is a facility that we're involved with at Queen's University. It's called the PanStars Telescope. Okay. You can think of it as the largest digital camera in the world. Okay. Uh, now, I've got a, a camera on my phone that I think that's uh, 8 megapixels, and you know, 5 megapixels, 8 megapixels is quite familiar with us. Well, this has a camera that's got 1,400 megapixels, or 1.4 gigapixels. And the PanStars-1 telescope is spending three and a half years surveying the entire night sky visible from Hawaii. But at the same time, we're using it to survey for uh, near-Earth asteroids and anything else out there that's orbiting our sun. Okay, so it's it's doing continual surveys over the sky. Awesome. Um, So um, the NeoShield project itself, it's a relatively new new project. Um, And so its main focus is to to plan... um, is there anything more you can say about that? Well, no, well, okay. So yes, the the thing is that we don't have the money mm-hmm. uh, to actually build a space mission. But the important thing is that that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is find out if we want to see and show that we can move an asteroid, which is something that nobody has done up to now. Then we want to plan that out properly. So that's what NeoShield is doing. That's its primary focus is to look at the different technologies, investigate them in quite some depth, and select one or maybe two mm-hmm. that we could test with a relatively low-cost mission. Because if we were to launch such a mission in the future and show that we can move an asteroid, then 
we're pretty happy we can sit back and let the surveys continue <laughs> yeah. and wait until we do find an object that's on a threatening trajectory. However, if we launch such a mission and with the best modelling and best engineering and best uh, technology that we have to offer, we find that we can't move an asteroid with that, then we know we're in a problem. We've got to put our thinking caps on. So it's the, pur- the purpose of Near Shield is to see whether or not we can plan a mission to see if we can move an asteroid. Uh, and that will take us about three, three and a half years. So uh, in the summer of 2015, we should have a good idea of what we want to do next. Okay. It's absolutely fantastic. But the concepts of the gravity tractor and everything are absolutely amazing. But yeah, thank you very much for stopping to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks for that, Christina. Next up, we have Melanie talking to Dr. Thomas Target about massive black holes. Hi, this is Melanie, and I'm here today with Dr. Thomas Target from the Royal Observatory in Newborough. Hi, Tom. Hi there. How are you doing? Just fine, thanks. Enjoying the conference? It's been great so far, actually. So I saw from your poster that you're working on massive black hole in a very distant universe, and I thought that sounds really exciting, and so I chased you down to try to interview you, but uh, can you tell me more about it? Sure thing. Uh, well, I'll start you off with a sentence that you'll find in many papers these days, and it's that every massive galaxy at its centre contains a supermassive black hole. And this is actually true in our own galaxy. If you look in the centre of our galaxy, it's about 25,000 light years away, we see there's a tremendous black hole, sort of uh, 10 to the 8, 10 billion sort of solar mass black hole, i.e. weighing about that much more than our sun. And we know this because if you look at it, you can't see the black hole itself because it's black. But around it, you can see stars that are orbiting it. And because these stars are very massive themselves, but because the black hole is so massive, it accelerates the stars up to sort of 0.3 times the speed of light, which is incredibly fast for something that heavy. So we were able to use that just using Newton's equations to determine that this black hole must be incredibly massive. But if we look at other galaxies in the local region, we're actually able to determine that every other massive galaxy also has a central supermassive black hole at its core. And what was really interesting when we discovered this was that the mass of the black hole is related to the mass of the galaxy. So if you have a big galaxy, it's got a big black hole in the middle. If you've got a smaller galaxy, there's a smaller black hole in the middle. And this tells you something fundamental about the sort of co-evolution of black holes and the galaxies that host them, because they would not have this very tightly correlated relationship unless there was some sort of mechanism that that sort of regulated them as they were growing together. So because we always see a big black hole in a big galaxy, small galaxy, small black hole, we know that as the two grew up together, they were interacting. So it's sort of like a cosmic chicken and the egg. Which one came first? Did you have a big galaxy that makes a big black hole in the center? Or did you have a bigger black hole that accreted a big galaxy around it? So what we do uh, now is try and look further and further back in time to see if we can see a big galaxy with a small black hole or vice versa to see which one came first. Have you found anything? Uh, Yes, yes. Um, So the results from this poster were effectively saying that as we start to look uh, further and further back in time, we notice that there's an offset between the two and that the relationship is actually changing. And we know this because we can measure the two at increasing redshift, but it's not that easy. How far back are you looking? Uh, the, the ones I'm talking about in my poster are about uh, 12 billion years ago. So it's only about 1.6 billion years after the, after the Big Bang, after everything started. Uh, but the problem is measuring the mass of the galaxy and the mass of the black hole at this high redshift is very difficult. As I said, in our own galaxy, we can see stars going around the black hole, and that tells us uh, the mass of the black hole. But at high redshift, we have to use a slightly different technique. And what we can do is look at, as I said, we can't see the black hole, but we can see light that comes from around it and something called an accretion disk. So as matter falls in towards the black hole, it starts to spin up and form a disk and gets very, very, very hot and emits radiation. And that radiation travels out and hits other clouds of dust and gas that are surrounding it and creates these incredibly broad emission lines, uh, which we can measure the width of. And the width of that line tells you how fast gas is going around the black hole. And just like watching a star go around the black hole, you can use Newton's equations to work out how fast the gas is going and hence how massive the black hole is. What uh, What kind of data you take? Is it like optical data, radio data, UV? Okay, so we use near-infrared imaging on sort of ground-based telescopes like the United Kingdom of Red Telescope, UKIRT, or Gemini to observe the uh, to observe the host galaxy. And then for the black hole, we'd use optical spectra to try and see how wide the line is and then get the black hole mass of the two. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, what we can do then is, once you have the black hole mass, you look at the galaxy, and the problem you have is that the light coming from the region around the black hole I told you about, which is wonderful for giving you the black hole mass, is a huge problem when trying to figure out the mass of the host galaxy. Because it's sort of, you get so much more light from that central region than you do from the galaxy itself. So you have to spend a very long time taking your data and sort of treating it as lovingly as you can to effectively try and separate the light coming from the host galaxy as opposed to the light coming from the region around the black hole. And if you can do that, and we've been able to do this for two quasars at this very high redshift, which is very, very difficult. And thankfully, we've been able to do this, and that gave us an estimate of how much how much starlight there is coming from the host, and uh, you can use that to work out how massive the host is. And it turns out, actually, that it looks like the black hole has actually finished growing before the galaxy. So it looks like in the case of chicken and egg for galaxy and black hole, it's actually the black hole that came first. Okay, so your sample basically is so far only only two because it's so difficult to to get. What um, what data do you use? Is it from data you took yourself? Is it from big surveys? How you, do you determine which one is a good candidate for this kind of study? So. Quasars that are this bright, so you can see them at such high redshift, are very, very rare on the sky. So you typically won't find them in some of the big surveys that have been going on. And it would be great to do so, but unfortunately the surveys just aren't quite big enough yet. So we found these things in very shallow surveys that do exist, but we had to follow them up with data from the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, which is an 8-meter optical infrared telescope based in Chile. And for each source, we had to sit on it at for about an entire night. We had to apply for this time, we got it. But because it's so much time just to one object, they wouldn't give us give us a huge sample. So they said, here you go, here's two objects, see what you can do with this, and if you do a good job, hopefully we'll be able to get more time. So fingers crossed for the next round of uh, telescope allocations, where we might get to be able to do some more quasars and get an even better constraint on this relationship that we've been measuring. Yeah, because it seemed that well, two quasars, you get pretty good results, so they should give you a lot more time. Yes, I completely agree. <laughs> I was wondering, since you're looking at you want to look at something that's very far away. How about looking at the um, lens quasars? So those those sources that are at high redshift but are lensed by another galaxy and would be magnified, would that be maybe good candidates for the kind of study you do? Yeah, so lensing is a wonderful tool for trying to find things that are far away because it magnifies the light. But unfortunately, because it's so, so difficult to try and separate the light from the galaxy, from the light around the black hole, it's just too distorted. We'd have to have such a good understanding of what was happening with the lens to actually see this. So it does unfortunately require a big telescope for a long time to hopefully do this. Yeah, but if, if it works with the next round and you get even more results, maybe you could try. Uh, we could try. Um, obviously, the, the problem is if we get more data, you know, we'd love to have more data. It's just a question of getting it reduced and working on it. And as I said, if we can get up to 10 quasars, we're hopefully into a territory where we have a much better understanding of what's going on because sort of more is, more is good. So I guess you just have to like hire more PhD students. Yes, I definitely should have my own PhD student. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Tom. It was very nice to talk to you. It was great chatting to you too. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, enjoy the conference. Cheers. Thanks for that, Melanie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So what story have you got for us this week, Christina? Um, I have a story about space plane engines. These space plane engines, are, it's known as the Skylon Space Plane Project, and tests have started on... Um, the technology that would be used in these engines. Um, the really cool thing about them is that these are part rocket engine and part jet engine. So they burn hydrogen and oxygen, but in the lower atmosphere, they're going to take in the oxygen from the atmosphere rather than having to store it like a jet engine. But at some point on its trajectory, it's going to flip to rocket mode and stop <laughs> stop taking in the oxygen from the atmosphere and burn the oxygen that it has as a fuel supply which is really, really cool, and it'll allow them to take off like a, a regular airliner and then flip to a rocket mode and go into space, which is so unbelievably cool. It's like James Bond-style <laughs> space travel. Exactly. Um, and the tests that are undergoing, obviously it has to undergo lots and lots of tests, um, but this is for one particular aspect of the technology. It's the um, pre-cooling system, which is used to cool the oxygen that's going in, that's taken in from the atmosphere. And so they need to to prove that that's obviously functional and so they're doing that by putting the the, the pre-cooling module in front of a Viper jet engine which is a, a 1960s vintage power unit <laughs> is how it's been described and so yeah it sound very safe to be honest <laughs> well they're not it's not being put on a it's it's undergoing tests it's in fully testing environment um, don't make them what I used to 
Bust out the <laughs> 1960s technology. Yeah. Um, and assuming everything goes well with this, they're hoping to get like more investment and continue development and in the future make sort of a, a smaller, full-sized engine that they could then test and show that the technology works sort of when it's put together. And, yeah, and then eventually space planes. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> So my story this month concerns four white dwarf stars that are being studied by astrophysicists at the University of Warwick. Um, And they were originally part of a Hubble Space Telescope survey designed to study the chemical composition of the atmosphere of white dwarfs. But there are two things which make these four objects stand out in particular. And the first is that the dust in their atmosphere, which is believed to be the remnants of planets that once orbited them, is remarkably close to the composition of the Earth. So they see this as evidence that they were once orbited by Earth-like planets, which is very exciting to start off with. But the second thing is that um, the typical composition of the atmosphere of a white dwarf is mainly hydrogen helium. So what this means is that gravity would quickly pull any heavier elements into its core. So the fact that this Earth-like dust is seen at all means that we're seeing the planets in the very very late stages of the life. So potentially the show what the Earth's future demise might look like. That's, that's, it's brilliant, but it, it's terrifyingly brilliant. It's, <laughs> but we won't be here to see it, so, you know. Well, we will if we're watching it, like, now. <laughs> and I have a question about, is are the white dwarfs in, sort of, are they separated out? Is Are they four white dwarfs that are... Oh, the four, the four individual objects are not, okay. like, part of a system. Just, okay four separate objects where they've seen this. It was in a part of quite a large survey, I think it was about 80 objects altogether, so that's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. They could use it, you know the, all those apocalyptic films that come out about the end of the world, instead of <laughs> making up footage they could just do a simulation and show actual footage of the end of the world. Alright, and um, lastly, actually I've got an update on uh, the James Webb Telescope which as you'll know, is uh, the successor to Hubble, and it's due to be launched in 2018. But um, just now, um, a very important instrument on it has actually been completed. It's built and it's ready to ship um, to the US. And the it was a massive British contribution in completing this instrument, and it's called the Mid-Infrared Instrument, or MIRI. And uh, it's about £5 billion enterprise, and they've, yes, it's been built, and it's off to the US, and... Basically, what Mary's going to do is it's going to look at starlight from the very first luminous objects in the universe. So it's going to be looking at stars from around 13 billion years ago. So back to the very, very beginning of the universe. And then we're talking about the very first stars, um, which is phenomenal. Um, and as, as with all these very complicated um, space-based instruments, it's freezing. So it's <laughs> at uh, minus 266 Kelvin. Uh, it's very cold, and uh, but it has it has two very clever things on board in it as well. So it's, it's an interferometer. It's going to be measuring starlight. They've also put in there a coronagraph, and the point of that is to block out very bright light signals, so that Mary will actually be able to block out a, a bright star, for instance, and just be able to look at the planet orbiting it. So not only can it look at sort of ancient stars, it can also look at ancient planets as well. Um, and it's also got a spectrograph on it so that when they finish measuring the light from the stars, they can um, look at the different chemicals that may be in the stars themselves with a bit of spectro- uh, spectroscopy. So, yeah, not only is it, will it be capable of collecting data, it will be ca- uh, capable of doing a bit of data analysis up there as well. That's very impressive. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, from one excellent British uh, contribution to astrophysics to another, here's Dr. Tim O'Brien answering your astronomical questions. Our first question today is from Simon, who says, Love the latest Jodcast. Can you answer this question for me? A free neutron evaporates, or so I'm told. So why doesn't a neutron star evaporate? Okay, so yeah. Um, so I suppose we should first of all uh, mention what a neutron star is. Um, so a neutron star is something that's sort of left over as the remnant of a, uh, a massive star that explodes at the end of its life. Um, but the central part of the star collapses in on itself. And it makes uh, effectively a dead star that uh, weighs as much as the sun, um, but about the size of a city, so about 20 kilometres across. Um, so you've got a very dense object. And when you crush that thing down, as it collapses down on itself, um, you get a lot of electrons and protons that are basically uh, form neutrons. So it's got a lot of neutrons in it, hence the term neutron star. Um, 
you can imagine such a small object, if you took the whole sun and you squashed it down to be 20 kilometres across, the force of gravity is extreme. And just to give you a feel for that, maybe, um, if you were able to stand on the surface of a neutron star, um, the acceleration due to gravity that you'd feel is about 100 billion times more than the acceleration due to gravity we feel at the Earth's surface. So if you do a quick calculation, if you sort of held a, a bag of sugar out about a metre above the surface of a neutron star and let go of it, it would obviously accelerate down towards the surface. It would fall um, and it would hit the surface a metre below um, at a speed of 2,000 kilometres per second. And it would then explode with the energy of 500 tonnes of TNT. So it's um, So these are pretty extreme objects. Um, and the reason they don't sort of collapse in on themselves any further um, and make a black hole um, is because of something called neutron degeneracy pressure, which is something that comes out of quantum physics. Basically means the neutrons can't be packed any closer uh, than they already are. You get this sort of extra source of pressure um, that holds itself up against its own weight. Now, it's not entirely neutrons. And one reason we know that a neutron star isn't entirely neutrons is because they have very strong magnetic fields. And to get a magnetic field, you need charged particles. So there are electrons, there are protons, there are ions even in the surface, we believe, of neutron stars. Um, but there are they are dominated by neutrons. Now, the question related to something called neutron decay or neutron evaporation, I think, was mentioned. Um, so, yeah, if you take a neutron, which is normally inside the nucleus of an atom, and you pull it out into free space and you sort of sit it there, it will decay um, with a half-life of about 10 minutes. It'll actually um, effectively turn into a proton, an electron, and, a, and an electron antineutrino. Um, and that means if you had a population of them, you know, you had a thousand of them, then 10 minutes later, 500 of them would have would have broken up into these uh, into a proton and electron and this, this electron antineutrino. Now, that doesn't happen inside, that doesn't happen overall to a neutron star, because effectively um, we we are in a position where these are free neutrons. Um, they're packed into this extremely dense object. Um, you do get neutron decay, so you will get neutron decays happening. Um, it's actually this sort of, it's called a beta decay process. But you also get um, inverse beta decay, which means a proton can be converted back into a neutron and you actually emit a, a positron and, a, and an electron neutrino. You can even capture an electron directly um, and, uh, and emit an electron neutrino. So you basically end up with a sort of equilibrium where you're getting neutrons being converted to protons and protons being converted back to neutrons. And the net effect of that is that you produce these neutrinos and antineutrinos, and they can whiz out through the through the neutron star, and that's one way in which the neutron star can cool. It can lose energy by that process. So the whole star doesn't evaporate, but you do get neutron decays happening, but you also get the inverse process. So I hope that answers his question. Next question is from John, who says, I have heard descriptions of the first few microseconds of the universe right after the Big Bang. I don't recall reading what are the key dimensions of the universe as it unfolds. For each point in time, what is the diameter of the universe, and what is its temperature? Okay, right. So this is a principle could be a very long answer, but I'll try not to uh, to do that. So the first thing to talk about is, you know, if we're talking about the size of the universe, uh, we've got to be a little bit careful because, of course, um, the universe might be infinite. And so what we really have to think about is a sort of scale length in the universe. So it's a typical um, size scale. So if you like, you know, the distance between two points in the universe. And as the universe is expanding, that distance would increase. So um, so we could think about um, what scale to pick. Um, and just to answer this question, I think we could a good scale to pick might be um, the size of the observable universe. So this is the um, the bit of the universe that we that we've had time to see um, since the Big Bang. In other words, the light's traveling towards us from a distant point in the universe in the 14 billion years since the Big Bang. It's traveled a certain distance. We can see out to that point. So if you imagine this sort of sphere sitting around us, that's the bit of the universe we can see, but the universe itself might go on uh, well beyond that. And in fact, we're, we're sure that it really does go on for probably at least 20 or 25 times the scale of the, the observable universe. But let's think about that, the size of the observable universe. Um, it turns out that um, the distance from here to the sort of edge of the observable universe, as best we can tell from observations of the, of the cosmic microwave background, 
is about 14,000 megaparsecs. So 14 billion parsecs, which in old money is 46 billion light years. Okay, so that's the distance to the edge of the observable universe, which is sometimes a bit confusing because it's actually only nearly 14 billion years since the Big Bang, but actually the distance to the edge of the observable universe is bigger than that because the universe has been expanding since. So it's about roughly three times the uh, the edge of the universe, so 46 billion light years. Now, if you sort of wind the clock back and you think about the universe shrinking, if you like, the distances between points reducing, then you can um, then you can actually sort of do complicated cosmology. You can look at how the universe should expand with time, and there's lots of ways you can do that in detail. But if we just roughly think of a very simple case where the universe just expands at a constant rate, which actually <clears throat> is not a bad approximation, it turns out, because the edge of the universe is uh, is about what we'd have got uh, if the universe had been expanding at the same speed as it is now. That's what, that's what it turns out to be. So if we do that, we can actually answer a question like, we can say, okay, well, one second after the Big Bang, how, how big would the size of the observable universe be then compared to what it is now? So it would basically be one second as a fraction of the number of seconds in the 13.7 billion years since the Big Bang. So if you take that fraction, that gives you a number that's um, about 2 times 10 to the minus 18. So it's a very tiny fraction. Multiply that by the scale of the of the observable universe now, you end up with a number that's about a billion metres, another million kilometres, which is actually only about three times the distance to the moon. So if you can imagine the, the, the sort of scale of the observable universe at that time, one second after the Big Bang, it's only not much bigger than the scale of the Earth-Moon system, which is one way of thinking about it. Um, there are obviously, you know, there are, there's much more complications to that, if you like. We could think about, we talk about inflation. There's a, there's a period in the universe we think our best ideas of cosmology at the moment allow for a, uh, a period that, ha a sort of special phenomenon called inflation, which happened just a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang, maybe only 10 to the minus 34 seconds after the Big Bang, when we think the universe suddenly rapidly increased in, in, in size, in, in scale size, um, by a factor of maybe somewhere between 10 to the 30 and 10 to the 60. So the universe got much, much bigger very rapidly. But then after that, it carried on expanding in this sort of, you know, roughly linear fashion that we just talked about. Um, and there was a mention of temperature as well. And the simple thing about temperature is temperature just scales with size. So if we know how the size scale goes, um, then for, for example, when the cosmic micro microwave background was produced, um, about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe was about a thousand times smaller or the scale sizes in the universe were a thousand times smaller than they, than they are now. And so the temperature is about a thousand times bigger so it's a thousand times hotter so we go from a temperature of the universe the cosmic microwave background of about three kelvin now um so that's minus 270 degrees celsius to a temperature of about 3000 kelvin which is effectively you know the surface temperature of a big red giant star um so the universe was a sort of orangey red color if you like at the time that the uh, the cosmic microwave background was emitted so i hope that's some help um, obviously not the great detail there, but it gives you some idea of how sizes and temperatures vary with, with age in the universe. And then finally, we have a question from David, who starts by saying, Hi, I thought up of this question while sitting in the dark between taking photos a few hundred feet underground in the slate mine. I'm aware that weakly interacting neutrinos can make it through a few hundred feet of rock, and these can be detected by equipment. I've also heard that cosmic rays have been detected by photographic sensors. My question is, if I am at a depth shallow enough for particles to reach me, would anything such as the particle itself or the decay products produce anything visible if they were to hit my retina? And how long would I have to wait? Okay, we'll probably leave aside the question of why he was underground in a slate mine taking photos, but uh, um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so first of all, 
let's just remember what neutrinos are. Um, they're basically these sort of tiny sub subatomic particles. Um, and they're, they're produced in various ways, but they're certainly produced in the center of the sun. So as a byproduct of the nuclear reactions that are taking place that power the sun. And there's, there's many of these neutrinos produced, um, that effectively whiz through the sun, hardly interacting with the, the body of the sun at all. Um, and rush out into space in all directions. And actually, there's so many produced in the centre of the sun that as we're sitting here now, um, there's about six million million of them passing through our brains every single second. <laughs> so six times 10 to the 12, six million million neutrinos every second passing through our brains that have come from the centre of the sun. Now, you know, that sounds a little bit worrying, perhaps. Um, but as um, as was pointed out, they do actually interact very weakly with matter. So they basically rush straight through. The vast, vast majority of them just pass straight through with no interaction at all. So you never you wouldn't even notice them. So you, you would actually need a far, far bigger brain if you're going to use your brain to detect these uh, these particles. So the detectors that we do use um, are much bigger than that. Um, now, uh, how do we detect them? Well, they can interact. As you say, the chances of them interacting are pretty pretty small, but they can interact. And when they do, they can actually accelerate. They can transfer some energy um, to a charged particle, for example, an electron. And that'll increase the speed of the electron. And in fact, you can you know make the electron then move at relativistic speeds. So one of these high-energy neutrinos can transfer enough energy to an electron to accelerate it to, to speeds that are a good fraction of the speed of light. Now, rather bizarrely, maybe, um, you can, in fact, accelerate these particles, these electrons, for example, to speeds that are faster than the speed of light. Now, don't worry, we're not, we're not going to get sort of caught up in whether neutrinos travel faster than the speed of light here. It, but it is actually possible to travel faster than the speed of light in a particular medium, in a particular type of material. And the reason is because light slows down as it passes through most materials. So, in fact, what, what matters here is something called the refractive index of that material. So if you pick water, for example, then the speed of light in water is actually three quarters of the speed of light in a vacuum. Um, so you can actually get an electron, you can accelerate it to, say, 90% of the speed of light, and it will, and if it then travels through water, it will actually be travelling faster than light is possible to travel in that water. Now, that actually, that effect... Um, is it, you know, is the, an analogy for that would be like a supersonic aircraft traveling faster than the speed of sound in the atmosphere that produces a sonic boom, a shock wave traveling through the atmosphere. You effectively produce an optical shock wave when a charged particle travels faster than the speed of light in, in a medium like water. So that optical shock wave is called Cherenkov radiation. It's basically a flash of light. So some of these, um, detectors, these neutrino detectors, um, and an example would be one, there's one called Super Kamiya Candy, which is in Japan. Um, and basically it consists of a massive tank of water, 50,000 tonnes of water, um, pure water, surrounded by detectors that look for all the tiny flashes of light that occasionally occur when a neutrino passes through that, um, that vo large volume of water and, and produces one of these uh, accelerations that causes one of these particles to travel faster than the speed of light and give you a Cherenkov flash. Now, even with that size of detector and the sophistication of that equipment, um, that actually for something like Super Candy, they still only get uh, several thousand detections a year in that volume of water. So if you think about that, if you go back to thinking about how many of these particles are, are rushing through our brains as we're speaking now, um, that volume, Super Kamiokande, is equivalent to about 50 million brains in terms of volume. So if you work those numbers out, you'd be waiting about 5,000 years for one of those interactions to take place in your brain. Um, so you'd be waiting a quite a long time for just one of those events. Now, um, we also mentioned cosmic rays in the question. Um, and cosmic rays are, are actually charged particles themselves. So they're much more strongly interacting than neutrinos. Um, they're arriving from outer space all the time. Um, some of them come from the sun, whether they be protons, electrons, the nuclei of atoms. Some of them are accelerated in supernova explosions or in um, active galaxies near, near the black hole at the centre of active galaxies. Um, and if you're outside the atmosphere, the sort of flux of these cosmic rays is much higher because the atmosphere in some sense um, protects us from these things. Uh, and actually it is possible 
to see cosmic rays. Uh, and the astronauts, for example, you go back to the Apollo missions, uh, when they got well outside the atmosphere there, it turned out that the astronauts saw flashes of Cherenkov light, which are believed to be from cosmic rays, charged particles, whizzing through the sort of jelly of their eyeballs, uh, faster than the speed of light in their eyeball. And they were seeing something like a couple of flashes a minute um, sitting there in space. If they sort of let their eyes get used to the dark and closed their eyes, um, they were seeing these unusual flashes of light, which were these flashes of Cherenkov light. So, yeah, so in, so in that sense, you can use your eye as a detector for cosmic rays if you get above the atmosphere. Um, but if you're trying to detect neutrinos, you need something that's uh, far, far larger volume than your, your eye. And even then, you still don't see very many detections. And that's it for this month. Please send all of your questions via the webpage at www.jodcast.net. Thanks for that, Tim and George. Now on to the feedback. Well, first of all, we've had no post, Boo. which is sad. Boo. So yeah, send us some post. But Please. We <laughs> uh, but we have had an email from John McKinney, who says he's now retired, but he did spend many hours listening on his um, van pool rides into work at JPL in Pasadena, which is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. <laughs> unbelievably cool. <laughs> And now he finds himself working in his garden and still listens. So, yeah, thank you very much for listening and we hope you continue to. And uh, we've heard from Dan on the forum. He says, thanks for another great show. And we've also had some posts on Facebook. So thank you very much uh, to everyone's contributions and keep telling us what you think and keep listening. And once again, thanks for all the retweets and follow Fridays that we've had on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us post. The address is on the website. Now all that's left to say is thanks to Nick Germanic, Professor Alan Fitzsimmons and Dr Thomas Target for the interviews and Fotini Laiku for the Jod Bite. The editors were Melanie Jandra, Melis Irfan, Tim O'Brien, Christina Smith and Dan Thornton. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, Jod on! Mm-hmm.